following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, so uh, I am Patrick, and uh, my family and I have just been here in Thailand for, what has it been, four months? Four months now. Um, planted an Acts 29 church in the United States and CCF is an Acts 29 church also. That's our church planting network and so that's how we got connected with you all and really grateful to be with you. Appreciate the welcome you've given us all and the opportunity to preach um, and be used by the Lord is, uh, is a great thing. So we are going to be continuing in Galatians this morning. Uh, so if you would get to Galatians chapter 3 starting in verse 23. Uh, we're going to continue. We're going to go, Lord willing, all the way through chapter 4, verse 11. So if you want to get that passage ready, we're going to read it here in just a moment. So if you've been following along with us, you know that Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia. And there was one, one really big, critical, kind of foundational problem in the church in Galatia, and that was that they were confused about what the gospel really is. They had forgotten some real foundational truths that Paul had taught them when he traveled to Galatia, preached the gospel there, and people had come in among them, Jewish people who were claiming to be Christians, maybe some of them legitimately were Christians, but they themselves were confused, and they believed that in order to be a real Christian and to be most spiritual and most acceptable to God, you had to put faith in Christ and you had to obey the Jewish Old Testament law. And, and it was through this obedience to the law that you became most spiritual, most Christian, uh, and, and most worthy of salvation. And the gospel, of course, flies in the face of that notion. The gospel says it's not by your works, but by the work of Christ that we're saved and through trusting in him, not trusting in our own righteousness. So this is, you, you can tell just from a, a sh- very short explanation, it is really important that people understand this truth. And so Paul thought it was very important, and he went to the trouble of writing an entire letter to convince them that this was so important. In fact, that their lives were at stake, depending on whether or not they believed this truth. So We're just right in the middle, right in the meat of this uh, letter to the Galatians. And again, we're we're trying to travel with Paul through his argument to them. uh, And hopefully, by the Spirit's help, we can catch up with him and understand him and believe what he says because it's truth from the Lord. So uh, I'll read this passage out loud if you want to follow along. And then uh, once we've read it together, let's stop again and just ask for some help from the Lord and, uh, and ask him to do what only he can do. So Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Let's pray for some help. Lord, we want to come to you in this moment not with confidence in ourselves and our gifts and our abilities to teach, our ability to hear, our ability to obey. We want to come with confidence in you and in the mighty work that your Spirit can do in our hearts. Well, we don't trust in ourselves. We don't trust in our works. We trust in you. So here we are, Lord, please work among us. Please help us to hear from you. Lord, it's our our desire. It's what brought us here this morning, not to just see some people, sing some songs, study some words. Lord, we've come here to learn from you, that you yourself would teach us and that it would transform us, that we would become more like Jesus this morning, that we would be different than when we came here. We want these things, Lord, not just so that we would be better people, but so that you would be more honored and glorified in us and through our lives. So please accomplish these things, Lord, by your Spirit. Holy Spirit, we call on you. We need you. We ask for you. Invite you. Please work in us. Do what only you can do. We ask for it, trusting in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... Uh, The big idea here in this passage, of course, is that before Christ came, we were slaves under the law, slaves under the law, through which we could not be counted righteous. It was impossible. The law was doing some things, but one thing that it couldn't do was perfect us and make us worthy of a relationship with God. But now that Christ has come and established a new covenant based on faith, not based on works, We're set free from this bondage under the law, and we're made sons and daughters, even heirs, along with Christ. Even heirs. So that now we're Abraham's children according to the promise that God made to him. You remember the promise God made to Abraham, I'll make you a father of this great nation, so many people that it's more than the sands of the sea or the the, stars you can see in the sky, and, and if we have faith in Christ, we become those children, children of that 
promise. So therefore then, only faith in Christ, not circumcision, not works of religion, not good works, doing good deeds for people, none of that can save you. None of that is necessary for salvation. Some good works may end up being the result of your salvation, but they won't save you. And this is the big idea that Paul's been trying to drive home into the hearts of these Galatian believers. And he's hoping that the gospel he preached in the beginning will again resonate in their hearts and they'll truly believe it and be children of God. But he has this concern in his heart as a as a pastor and as an apostle, Paul has this concern that maybe he preached in vain. He said it here again at the end of our passage, uh, I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. And this concern that he has isn't that the gospel didn't have the power he thought it had, it's that the people didn't have the belief he thought they had. So he's here again explaining the gospel, and we know that the gospel, if you've been in church, if you've been especially in a church that's preaching the gospel consistently over you, to you, then you know that there are, in the Bible, a lot of different angles you can come at to the gospel in order to understand that the Scripture does this all the time. It's about redemption. It's about reconciliation. It's about healing. It's about freedom. There, there are a lot of different ways you could describe the gospel, but it's all about Jesus coming and doing what we couldn't do in order to bring us to God and that we would be justified before a holy God and accepted by Him rather than rejected as sinners. This is the gospel. So here Paul is describing the gospel to the church in Galatia and he wants to come at it now at an angle from adoption, from this family idea that we were outside the family and we're being brought in by the power of the gospel through what Christ has done. So he uses this phrase in the beginning of our passage, now before faith came, before faith came. So he's not saying that there was a time when people were justified apart from faith. He goes on and on making the point that even Abraham was justified through his belief. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's always been by God's grace through faith that human beings are reconciled to God. That's how it's always been, even before Christ came. What he's saying now is, before faith came, before this new covenant in faith, before it was revealed to human beings that it wasn't through works, and only by faith in Christ that you would be saved, before faith came. The law had uh, a lot of functions. It had a lot of functions, but one of the functions that it was really notably missing was an ability to save. An ability to save. But it did have some functions. So, uh, to be uh, captive under the law, as he says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. There's a certain kind of idea that he's trying to teach here to be what it means to be captive under the law. And, and in order to understand what he means by that, let's just understand what it is that the law can do. What it is that, that the law is actually functioning in, in the way God intended it to be. So uh, I'm just going to, there's probably more than this, but I'm going to give you three functions that the Old Testament law that God gave to Israel actually does 
perform these three functions. It had the function of revealing sinfulness to humanity. It shows us how we're sinful. It has the function of giving instruction for righteous living. It does teach us a righteous way to live. And then third, it points us forward to the coming Christ. So let's understand how it does these things. First of all, the law reveals sinfulness. How does it do that? Let's look at Romans 3, verse 20. Paul said this, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's Romans 3.20. So, let me read it again. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Not deliverance from sin, knowledge of sin. Well, how does that happen? Because as soon as someone gives you a law, and you realize you can't keep it, you understand there's something wrong with you, right? That's what the law does. Paul goes on in in Romans 7, and he says that as soon as he understood the law, suddenly his sinfulness sprang up inside of him and came to life. Before there was a law, he didn't understand even how he was broken, how he was sinful. He didn't understand the rebellion in his heart. But when he was taught the law, he understood his own sinfulness. So the law has this function of revealing sin in our hearts, showing us our inability to keep God's perfect law. It also has the function of instruction for righteous living. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. My boys need to chill on the wrestling sometimes. For murderers, they haven't gone that far, but I have an eye on them. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been Entrusted. It gives instruction for sinners on how not to sin. It gives prohibitions. Don't live like this. Live like this. Living in these ways is pleasing to God. Living in these ways is unpleasing to God. So instruction for righteous living. Even if we're unable to keep the instruction, the instruction is good. It's right. It also points us forward to Christ. Romans 3, verse uh, 21 and 22, just following the verse that we read before about it revealing our sinfulness, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the law is revealing our sinfulness, showing us how we cannot keep the standards of God's holiness, It's teaching us the right way to live and the wrong way to live, even if we can't do it. And it's pointing us forward and testifying to the Christ who was coming in our place because we couldn't keep the law. These three functions of the law, it it works. It's actually really good at it. Whether you know it's working or not, 
It's doing these things. So for thousands of years, the law was there. It had been given by God and it's performing these functions. And even if someone was so devoted to the law, even if they love it, even if they treasure it in their hearts and they devote their lives to obeying it, they realize they can't. They realize it's full of great instructions that they can't keep. And they realize that there's something that they find themselves longing for to do what they can't do in order to redeem them from their sinfulness. The law does a really good job, and it always has done a good job, of these three things. These three functions are all good, they're all necessary, but you notice that one function again that is noticeably missing. Saving sinners. Just can't do it. And that's what this letter to the Galatians is all about. Your obedience to the law cannot save you. You need to believe that it can't save you and you need to believe in what can save you. He's trying to lay this truth down for them, but he has to keep explaining with all this passion his love for Jesus, his belief in Jesus. Why can't the law save? What is it? Is there something wrong with it? Well, so far we've listed three, just three functions of the law that it's actually doing really well. We, we haven't noticed yet any malfunction. We've noticed something lacking. But what it, what, what it does do, it's, it's doing on purpose. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just doing what it was meant to do. The law can't save sinners. Why? For one primary reason, which is Paul's point here. It wasn't designed to. It wasn't designed to save sinners. It was designed to do what we've already explained. It's always been by grace through faith that sinners are saved, not by works, so that no one may boast. So when the law was given, God wasn't thinking, okay, let's try this. I really want to bring sinners to myself and justify them and make them holy in my sight. They're sinful. What can I do? What can I give them in order to justify them in my sight? God, God wasn't thinking, well, I'll give them the law. This is plan A. I'll give them a bunch of instructions and maybe that will save them. No, God wasn't trying to save us through the law. The law wasn't designed to save sinners. That's why it doesn't save sinners. Not because it's malfunctioning, but because it wasn't designed to save them in the first place. But there's another aspect of why the law can't save, even if the law was supposed to save. There's another aspect to why it can't. As Romans 8.3 says, it was weakened, the law was weakened by the flesh. By human flesh. Human beings just aren't capable of obeying the law perfectly. Sometimes we may get some things right, sometimes we get some things wrong. But just because we can do a few things right, doesn't mean we're justified before a holy God. All the things that we do wrong condemn us before a holy God who is perfect who is perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly steadfast, perfectly faithful, never fails, never falls, never sins. We cannot measure up to His standard. By one error, we are condemned. 
So the law, even if it was meant to save, couldn't because of our malfunction. We are sinful. So instead of earning salvation through our obedience to the law, every single human being, from Adam to the baby being born as I speak, has instead earned guilt through our disobedience to the law. So the law's most powerful and positive functions are to reveal sin, to teach righteousness, and point us to Christ. And in this capacity, the law is as good as King David sang all of his songs, even saying, the law of your mouth is better to me than a thousands of gold and silver pieces. The law, it's good. It's good in what it was meant to be good for. Paul's point here is that there's something it can't do and we shouldn't trust in it to do what it can't do. In terms of salvation from the penalty of our sins against this holy God, the law was only a guardian. Only a guardian, Paul says, until the gospel was revealed so that we could be justified by faith rather than being condemned by our works. Verse 24, he says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The language that Paul is going to use here in this passage is legal terminology, some of it, that the Romans used, that the Roman government used in order to uh, mete out cases of adoption. Uh, for Roman families. So some of this language is actually legal. In court cases where you'd had uh, an orphaned person, they would use some of these words in order to describe what was happening where this orphaned person was brought into a family legally, in a legally binding way, not just a notion, not just a kind of a, a, an idea, but something legally binding that was happening in the life of this person and in the life of the family. Adoption. The guardian, of course, was a person who cared for a child until he was old enough to take his inheritance. So the law was serving as a guardian until Christ came. It was performing some functions and performing them well, but it, it wasn't performing the function that the child needed ultimately, which was to be brought in to the family in a really full and complete way. It was only keeping watch. It was only taking care until something better was coming. Which isn't to say that there's anything, again, wrong with caretaking, wrong with guardianship, because the law was perfectly accomplishing what it was designed to do. Just the way a guardian could be a very faithful and good guardian. But there are some things that a guardian doesn't do, isn't designed to do. The guardian is a person who cared for the child until he was old enough to take his inheritance. So you imagine a member of the family, a child, maybe, born into the family, and yet is under the, the leadership of a guardian because he's not old enough to take responsibility for the inheritance that he's supposed to receive. He's waiting until that time when he'll be set free from the overseeing of the guardian. Verses 25 and 26, But now that faith has come, 
We're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. No longer just people under a guardian, but now you've been made full sons. Now that word sons is really special in this passage. The Greek word that Paul uses is the word that they would use in Roman cases of adoption, used to describe a person being adopted into a family. So not, not a son by natural birth. It's a different word here. Being adopted into a family. When this word was used to describe a person who was being adopted, it legally, in a legal sense, according to Rome, inferred on that person every right and every responsibility of a family member and an heir in that person. Every right and every responsibility. So from this point forward, you have been legally made a son or a daughter, and just as the natural sons and daughters have rights and responsibilities, you now bear the same rights and responsibilities. Even heirhood. Even to receive an inheritance from the family, which you couldn't legally do, before you were adopted. Now, starting in verse 27, we're going to read a little bit longer passage as he expounds on exactly what is happening. Starting in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So we've gone from this illegitimate child under the care of a guardian to now being adopted. And now the adoption is not just brought into the family, but made even an heir to receive an inheritance. Just as the firstborn has an inheritance in the family that was unquestioned, so now this adopted son or daughter has an inheritance, not just sliding into the margins of the family, but coming right into the heart of it. He's really expounding here on what it means to be brought in. He's sprinkling in some other images. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That picture of baptism we know is about being buried with Christ, being raised with Christ to walk in a whole new life, being made a whole new person. The old you is dead. The new you has come. But you've also put on Christ. It's like you're wearing Him. You're wrapped in Him, protected by Him, found in Him like you'd be found wearing a garment. You were dead. Now you're alive. You're wearing Him. You're adopted into His family. And in this way, Paul says that there's no favoritism. There's no division. There's no this kind of Christian, that kind of Christian. That's why he goes on to say there's neither Jew nor Greek. Well, we know that in the practical worldly sense, there were still Jews and there were still Greeks. In fact, that's kind of the whole point of this letter, right? There were Jews coming in and they were trying to persuade the Greeks that they had to live like Jews. But he's saying, in this family, we don't think that way. We don't think that there are some Christians like this and some Christians like that. Neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. 
Some of you hold this low position in the household. Some of you hold a higher position in the household. No. Level. Level. All the same. Absolute equality for all the sons and daughters in the household of God. Neither male nor female, which today means something, but back then meant a lot. Everybody wanted a son to carry on their name. And a, and a daughter was nice and she could perform some functions. We understand now how many functions and how desperately needy we all are for women. But then it was to have a male was most important. Most important. Saying, no, no one's more important than anyone else here. We've all been brought in to this family and hold equal standing, equal importance in the family of God. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's unity, there's sameness, there's equality in this family that you're being adopted into. Verse 29, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Imagine faithful people living all this time under the law, looking to God, but just being managed. Just being managed until something else would be revealed, until the time came when they could grow up into their inheritance. In the same way, we also, verse 3, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Think like this, live like this, obey these rules. Just worldly principles for living. But when the fullness of time had come, at just the right time, the time appointed by the Father, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father! The Spirit crying from within us, legitimizing our sonship. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. An heir is a son or a daughter who will receive an inheritance from the father after reaching an adulthood. That's what an heir is. And in Christ, because of what Christ has done, we're no longer orphans outside of the family. We've been adopted in the most legal sense in the heart of God, a final and complete work to bring us into the family of God. But not only that, we've been made heirs, special members, equal members in the family of God. We owed a debt to the Father that we could never repay and had a death sentence hanging over us. But Jesus, the actual Son of God, the rightful owner and the heir of everything, everything belongs to Him. He made all things. All things are His. He can do with them what He wills. And this Jesus, this heir and owner of everything, the first in the household of God, the actual and real Son of God, gave Himself up to pay the debt of an orphan. To redeem us 
to reconcile us to the Father. This is the heart of the Gospel. We couldn't. Jesus did on our behalf. Not only that, as if that weren't enough, not only that, we were reconciled to the Father, not only redeemed from the debt that we owed, reconciled to the Father to such a degree that we have been not only counted as not enemies or not debtors or not orphans. He hasn't just negated all the negative, but that the Father, to such a degree we've been redeemed and reconciled, that the Father said in love for us, because of all that Jesus has done for us, I want Him as my Son. I want her as my daughter. Can you imagine the degree of love that your enemy, your enemy would take such a place in your heart that you would say, I want you to be like a preeminent member of my household. What would have to happen? What kind of work, what kind of redeeming work would have to happen that that person and your sight would go from the lowest, most treacherous enemy to the most adored person. You want to bring them close. You want to share everything with them. What has to happen? But not only did that happen, which is starting to feel like in America, I don't know if they have them in Europe, I, don't, I can't understand yet the, the TV commercials in Thai. I imagine it's similar. But in America, we have these infomercials where they tell you all this great stuff and how you really need this thing. And they always have this moment where they go, but that's not all. But that's not all. You know, and they say like five times. But that's not all. Like, how could there be more? You're already going to give me three for the price of one, but that's not all? There's always these moments. But that's not all. And not only that, right? Not only are we orphans adopted, not only are we adopted sons and daughters who've been made heirs, We've been promised this inheritance. An inheritance. How could we as enemies of God, as sinners against God, unrighteous, unholy, undeserving, outside the family of God, how could we ever have dreamed? How could we ever have dreamed that not only would we be brought in, not only would we be elevated to the status of equal in the household, but that we would be counted as heirs with an inheritance. Something that belongs to God that is shared with us. Shared with us. God didn't say, okay, I'll adopt you, but you'll come in at the bottom. You'll come in at the bottom. If you want an inheritance, you'll have to earn it. You'll have to prove how grateful you are. And then maybe I'll give you a slice of the pie. No. No. Listen, let me stop for a moment and and as much as I can, as much as the Lord might allow me in this moment to pastor your hearts, to shepherd your hearts in truth, let me say, no. When your hearts condemn you, when you've sinned, when you've failed, when you've condemned yourself, let me say, no. You have not come in as some peon on the bottom rung 
who has to spend his life proving to God how grateful he is in order to earn some slice of the pie. No! You've been brought in as a son, as a daughter, cherished, loved, adored, shared with, shared with. Everything that is Jesus's has been laid before you. Sharing it with Him joyfully, freely, abundantly. He loves you. He accepts you. He embraces you. He doesn't just tolerate you. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Not when you're in your best. Not when you're at your worst. He loves you. And He's glad that He saved you. Your full and complete, accepted, redeemed, reconciled, adopted sons and daughters of the living God. What is this inheritance? Isn't that what all of this just glorying in what God has done, what Christ has done for us to bring us into the family of God so that we might receive an inheritance. It all begs the question, what is this inheritance? What is it that I'm receiving from God that's so good, that's so satisfying? Something to savor and enjoy and live for. What is our inheritance? It is God Himself. It is God Himself. Can you imagine this God and us? You know you, right? You know you. I don't like to think about it, but I know me. I know what I'm like. I know who I am. I... I know what I'm like when no one's watching. I know the the thoughts that I have in secret that only God knows. I know me. Can we imagine this God and us sharing in the deepest, most satisfying parts of who He is when all we deserve to share in from Him was His wrath against our sin. But we get to have Him as a Father. As a Father. This is our inheritance. That the Father and His kingdom, His household, the future that He's going to establish, the city of God that will last forever for those who trust in Him, the riches of this glorious inheritance that we have in Christ is ours. Us. It's ours. When you, when you think of it in these terms and you try to imagine it just practically working out, oh yeah, I could see that as a possibility. You realize what a miracle it is. What a miracle it is that here we sit and that these things are true of us who trust in Christ. What a miracle. Now this is all glorious. It's all exciting to even think about, to speak about, to just glory in together. It's all so exciting. But Paul is afraid that the Galatians don't believe it. 
So he gives this sober kind of warning. He brings them back around. Look at here verses 8 through 11 in chapter 4. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, because in, in Paul's heart, and I hope in ours, that's the more important thing. Not that we would know God, but that God would know us. That He would know us, accept us, embrace us. After all this, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Laws, rules, instructions to try to earn God's favor. Whose slaves you want to be once more, enslaving yourself again as if the shackles have come off because of faith in Christ, but you're looking for your shackles to put them back on again. Why, Paul says, why? You observe days and months and seasons and years, just traditions. Living by traditions, hoping that you're your adherence to them will somehow save you. Verse 11, finally, he says, I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Now, it's obviously serious and it's sober, but not just because Paul is saying, oh, I'm worried that I did something that didn't work. That's, that's not the scariest part of this. Really, the, the scariest part of this the most sober part of this is in the explanation of what it means to be enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Because the crux of this passage, the real thrust and the force of it and the glory of it, is that you've been made now a son and a daughter and you're free from trying to earn righteousness that will save you. You're now free. You're not a slave to obeying these laws hoping they'll save you anymore. So then, what is it that's so terrible about this enslavement? Enslaved to what? Enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. For any first century Jew, there was, I think, a much more profound understanding of the spiritual world around them and how they interacted with it. There was nothing in life that was not ultimately spiritual. Everything was. Everything mattered in the, in the highest sense spiritually. So any enemy of God, any opponent to the gospel, anything posing as truth that was not gospel truth was not just a mistake, it was a lie from hell. A lie from hell. That's why he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's real spiritual beings trying to convince you to worship them by obeying their laws and traditions, believing that it could save you when they know the only thing that will save you is faith in God. Demons masquerading as angels of light. So here's just what comes come down to in the heart of Paul. Legalism is demonic. Legalism is demonic. It's a teaching from hell that says, if you're good enough, God will love you. If you're obedient enough, God will accept you. 
That is a demonic lie. And the gospel is the truth of Christ that combats it, pushes that demonic force back and says, no, no, stop looking to yourself and your own righteousness for freedom and look to Christ alone. Look to Christ alone to be who you can't be, to accomplish what you can't accomplish, and trust only in Him. Cast yourself at His feet and ask for His mercy that trusting in Him would deliver you from the penalty of your sins, not trusting in yourself. The stakes are high. This is a spiritual war for the souls of people. And apparently... I would say if you ask the Galatians, if you ask the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, putting your faith in Christ does not mean you've left the battle. That doesn't mean the battle's over. It means you've now become aware of the battle for your soul. You are now aware of the demonic tactic to convince you that you need to be good enough in order to be a son or a daughter. But let's not believe that demonic lie. Let's believe the truth of God. Let's continually put ourselves at the feet of God and confess our weakness, confess our sins, and live as people who are trusting in grace through faith. Always. As Paul said to the Colossians, as you've come to know Christ, so now walk in Him. How did we come to know Christ? By grace through faith. How should we then walk with Him? By grace through faith, not trusting in our own works, but in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. If the Galatians had turned away from the gospel and believed it was obedience to the Old Testament law that would save them, they would have been no better off than when they had worshipped demons and idols made by their own hands. But we who trust in Christ have come to be known by God as sons and daughters co-heirs with Christ of the kingdom of God. And the call is to continue in faith believing this gospel and not falling into that pit, that temptation to try to work to earn God's favor. To try to prove that you are worthy of the gift. No. But to live a life of gratitude for what you could have never earned. That's the life of a Christian. Let's pray together about it. Lord, we do just so desperately need You. And we're so thankful that those of us who trust in You this morning, that we believe the Gospel, and we've abandoned any hope that our good works and our our religious works and keeping traditions, that any of that could save us, that any of that could elevate us in Your household. Lord, we abandon the thought. We want to abandon it faithfully. As you've prescribed in your word, Lord, we want to give up any hope that we can save ourselves and just place ourselves once again at your feet to thank you that Christ came and died in our place a sinner's death, a criminal's death on the cross to pay the penalty, the debt that we could never pay for ourselves. We want to thank You also, Lord, that we do not just look back on something that a dead Savior did for us. 
but that we know with full confidence this morning that Jesus rose again on the third day after his crucifixion, that he is victorious over sin and victorious over death, that he sets the slaves free. Even today that Jesus is at your right hand, Father, interceding for us, fighting for us, that we have a living high priest making intercession for us. Thank you, Jesus, for your life. And please help us to know with full confidence and assurance this morning, for those of us who have trusted in this belief, this gospel, that we are sons and daughters, that we have an inheritance that we share together as equals in the kingdom of God. They can never be taken from us because it's given by you. And for those in the room who may not believe the gospel or maybe came here this morning, Holy Spirit, I ask you to please stir up their hearts. Please implant faith where it didn't exist before. Help them to understand the gospel, to believe the gospel, to trust only in Christ and abandon any hope of saving themselves. Please adopt them as sons and daughters this morning, Lord. We're going to continue to worship you, Lord. We ask that you would, by your Spirit, continue to work in our hearts powerfully for your own glory. We trust and ask for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.